Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he began asking his disciples, saying, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not overpower it. I suppose that it is fitting for my final sermon to you as your pastor is with one of the great themes of the Bible, the victory of Christ's church in history. Jesus had commended Peter's confession as the great confession of all genuine Christians. The knowledge that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that he's the Christ, is solely the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. That's why Jesus said, Peter, your, your confession of who I am didn't originate with your mind. It is a revelation of God to you by the Holy Spirit. No one can have this discernment of who Jesus really is outside of God's saving power. To know Jesus and to embrace him as your Savior, as your Lord, is evidence of the dunamis of God, the power of God, as Romans 1.16 says, that the gospel is the power of God into salvation to everyone who believes. So when Jesus told Peter in verse 18 that he was the rock upon which Jesus would build his church, he wasn't just speaking to Peter. It is not what Roman Catholicism says is the first Evidence that Peter was the first pope of the visible church. Peter spoke for the disciples. As we mentioned in previous messages, that was not unusual for Peter to be a spokesman for the disciples. What Jesus says here is that your confession, in speaking on behalf of the rest of the disciples, is... is that which is true about the Son of God. And in verse 18, there is a world of theology in this one passage where Jesus says, upon that confession, he says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not uh, prevail against us. What we see here is that in, in Matthew 16, 18, it is... Uh, This one place of many passages in the Bible conveying this great theme of the triumph of God by using his church as an instrument by the Son of God to subdue all his enemies under his feet. The winner in history is God. The winner is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, even though... She is often a persecuted body. 
just because you're persecuted, and just because those who live godly, as Paul says, will be persecuted, doesn't mean that the church is destined for defeat. As Tertullian in the uh, 3rd or 4th century said, he says, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Christians have been persecuted down throughout history, but God has prevailed through his church and for the glory of God to be revealed. God promised victory in Genesis 3, right there at the dawn of the fall of man. And when he said that the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent, would crush the head of the serpent. All of human history leading up to the end of the world we see is one of a sure victory of God over his enemies. Satan and his seed are not the victors. God, the Lord Jesus, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, is the victor. His church is the victor in his power. And so on the cross, we see according to the scriptures, according to Hebrews 2 and according to Colossians 2, we are told that Jesus defeated Satan on the cross and rendered him powerless over the souls of those whom God was going to save through the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told in 1 John 3 that the Son of God appeared for the purpose of destroying the works of the devil. And he did. Many people simply do not understand the imagery of Matthew 16, 18. The church is built upon the confession that Peter made that was typical of all those who trusted in Jesus. You know, the thing about it is the gospel consists of understanding who Jesus really is. The invisible church, now the Bible or our confession of faith uses some terminology that the Bible doesn't particularly use, but it still conveys the theological truth. It makes the distinction between the visible and the invisible church. The invisible church is those, all those people throughout history whom the Lord Jesus has and is going to redeem by his sovereign work. And that those who confess that Jesus is the Lord and is their Savior, they are the redeemed of the Lord. For example, we see in Romans 10, if you look at Romans 10, that great confession of what constitutes a genuine Christian. We read here in Romans 10, look at verses 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that Christ raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And there, so we see here that the mouth confesses 
that which the heart believes, and we confess the Lordship of Christ. Now, some people have viewed Matthew 16 as where the church is pictured as this invincible citadel where the attacking forces of Satan cannot overpower it. But that really is a faulty understanding of Matthew 16, 18. And the imagery here, I do not think is coincidental what Jesus uses. And it's really something that I believe Jesus was speaking of in Genesis chapter 22. Now, if you look, turn back to Matthew 16 for a moment. I want you to look at the text, and I want you to look at the grammar of the text, and you're going to see this. It says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not overpower it. What is confusing to people is that when you think of overpowering, it seems to convey assaulting but not able to prevail. But let me ask you, and the grammar is very clear, is it the gates of the church that are pictured here? Is that what the text says? No, it says it's the gates of hell. And these gates, and gates don't attack. They don't attack. Gates are defensive structures. And the Bible clearly, Jesus clearly says, it's the gates of hell that will not have the power to withstand his church. Now, the attacker is not the forces of darkness here, but the forces of light. It's the church of the Lord Jesus. Now, to, I mentioned that I don't think Jesus was using this as a coincidence to say it this way. I think he was specifically thinking of Genesis 22. So I want us to turn to Genesis 22 and look at verses 12 through 18. This is the instant where God had commanded Abraham to sacrifice Isaac to see if he would uh, trust in him. And we're going to see that Abraham will pass the test of God. Well, let's start reading at verse 12 of Genesis 22. And he said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad, and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the, the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. 
Notice what the text says. This seed of Abraham is going to do what? Possess the gate of their enemies. Now that's a sign of victory. We are told in Genesis chapter 15 that God promised to make Abraham's seed as numerous as the stars of the heaven and as the sand of the seashore. It was Abraham's faith in that promise in Gen- that where Genesis 15:6 says, because he believed that promise, it says, righteousness was imputed to Abraham because of that faith. Faith in a promise, and that's all it was, faith in a promise. The promised seed had not yet been born. Now, this has confirmed the fact that <clears throat> Romans, I mean, uh, Genesis 15, 6 is conveying the fact that Abraham's faith was in this promise, but the promise was in the promised seed. Paul confirms this in Romans chapter 4. I want you to turn with me, turn to Romans chapter 4. And look at verses 1 through 5. What then shall we say? That Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to those, now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. You see, Paul takes and gives an inspired interpretation of Genesis 15.6. Abraham didn't do anything of merit to earn God's favor. It was belief in the promise. So when... So actually, when we see in Genesis 22, him uh, obeying the Lord, that was, some believe, 17 to maybe 30 years later, after that promise was initially given in Genesis 15. So, salvation is not by, is by faith, it is not by works. Being a Christian is a confession that Jesus is our Savior, and is our Lord. It is Jesus who saves us. It is He who is to receive all the glory. We cannot rescue ourselves. So all genuine confessions or professions of faith consists of this, that Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us, credited to us, just like Abraham. Righteousness was credited to him because he had faith in a promise yet to come. We have faith in a Lord who has come. That's the only difference. And we confess with our mouth Jesus as Lord, and that confession stems from a heart that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Remember, it's on the basis of that confession that Jesus says to Peter, Peter, upon that 
rock, that confession, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell will not be able to overpower it. So, the church is built upon this great confession of who Jesus is. As we said, Genesis 22 stated specifically that Abraham's seed would possess what? The gates of their enemies. No, you can't, I trust you can't escape noticing the similarity of Genesis 22:18. And in Matthew 16, 18, they're virtually identical in the terminology. The concept is definitely the same. And so, who does the Bible say is the seed of Abraham? Well, turn to Galatians chapter 3. Look, first of all, at verse 16 of Galatians 3. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. But then if you look over further in Galatians 3, turn to look at verses 29. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. You see in Scripture, the seed of Abraham is both singular and plural. The seed of Abraham is singular Christ. He's the head. But then the Scripture says as well that the seed of Abraham is plural. Those who believe. In Jesus. And this is true with the whole testimony of Scripture. Jesus is the head of his church. And when we are in union with Jesus, we are part of that great body of believers in history. We are the seed of Abraham. It is to us who have been given the promises. Now, the seed of Abraham. We're told in the scripture, does it not say in Genesis 22, that they are destined to possess the gates of their enemies. Now turn over to show you that this is a common theme. Turn over to Genesis 24. And look at verse 60. Now the, the context here is when the servant was sent to find a wife from their countrymen for Isaac. And he finds Rebekah. And this is a statement that Rebekah's family makes when they realize that she's the one chosen, as it were, by God to be the wife of Isaac. And it says in, in verse 60, this is her family speaking, And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, May you, our sister, become thousands of ten thousands, and may your seed possess the gate of those who hate them. See that? Mm -hmm. So possessing gates of one's enemies 
is a symbol of victory. Who possesses the gates? Well, it says the promised seed. Now, Isaac was the promised seed born to Abraham and Sarah, right? And here we see who was the promised seed born to Isaac and uh, and Rebekah. But Jacob was the promised seed. And it says they would possess, the promised seed would possess the gate of their enemies. Turn over to Romans 9 with me, and we'll see that the Bible is very specific as to who is that spiritual seed. Look at Romans 9, verses 3 through 11. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption of sons, the glory and the covenants, and the giving of the law and the triple service and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's seed. But through Isaac your seed will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as seed. For this is a word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born, and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose, according to his choice, might stand, not because of works, but because of him who called. The spiritual seed of Abraham, the seed of Isaac, the seed of Jacob, are all those who spiritually trust in the promises. Just because you were a Jew didn't mean you had all the spiritual promises. We know that Ishmael didn't have them, though he was part of that covenant community. We know that uh, Jacob's twin Esau didn't have those promises, but he was born according to the flesh. It's not those who are born according to the flesh, it's those who are born of God. And so the, <clears throat> the spiritual seed, those who are the redeemed of the Lord, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, are those who are destined to crush their enemies, who will possess the gates of their enemies. And this is the task of the Lord's church. Now turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And look at verses 3 through 5. And look at the imagery here. Now it doesn't use the same ter terminology uh, exactly like Matthew 16, 18 or Genesis 22 or Genesis 24. But look what 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5 says. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. 
We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, that's just another way of saying you're going to possess the gates of the enemies, right? When you destroy fortresses, when you bring captives, when you have captives, that means you have overcome the fortress. Now, a gate, I just want you to picture a wall with its gates. As I said, a gate is a defensive structure. You've seen the old battles. You've seen that you've got to protect the gate of the city. If you lose the gate, the army just rushes in and wrecks havoc in the city. So once the gate falls, the city will fall. Here it says we are waging warfare, not a physical warfare. We're waging a spiritual warfare. And our weapons are divinely powerful to accomplish the task. Remember, Jesus says, I'll build my church upon which the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. They do not have the power. The gates of hell, the fortress or the citadel of hell, doesn't have the wherewithal to withstand the faithful advance of the armies of God, the church of the Lord Jesus. This is the testimony of Scripture. This is the theme, one of the great themes in the Bible. So, in this regard, the notion of victory in the Scripture is portrayed as possessing the gates of enemies. And there's another way it's portrayed in the Scripture. By the Messiah who makes his enemies lick the dust. Now you think about that image. But you know where that first that first promise of the enemies of God licking the dust came from? Turn with me to Genesis three fourteen. Now in the fall, and in God's pronouncement of judgment upon all the those responsible in the fall of man. Notice what God said in verse 14 of Genesis 3. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. Now remember, there we have the promise of the seed of the woman having her heel, as it were, injured, but she crushing the head of the seed of the serpent. That is, uh, that is a promise of God that we see in the scriptures. Now, so if this idea of licking the dust means you have been utterly decimated. You have your head to the ground, as it were, eating dust. Now turn to Psalm 72 for a moment. By the way, Psalm 72 is one of the great messianic psalms in the scriptures. I mean, it is a tremendous passage. We're actually going to read the entire Psalm 72. 
because it's so pertinent to what we're saying. Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness to the king's son. May he judge thy people with righteousness and thine afflicted with justice. Let the mountains bring peace to the people and the hills in righteousness. May he vindicate the afflicted of the people. Save the children of the needy. Crush the oppressor. Let them fear thee while the sun endures. And as long as the moon throughout all generations, may he come down like rain upon the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish, and an abundance of peace till the moon is no more. May he also rule from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Let the nomads of the desert bow before him and his enemies. Let the dust. Let the kings of Tarshish and all the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Sheba offer gifts. Let all the kings bow down before him. All nations serve him. For he will deliver the needy when he cries for help. The afflicted also and him who has no helper. He will have compassion on the poor and the needy. And the lives of the needy he will save. He will rescue their life from oppression and violence, and their blood will be precious in his sight. So he may live, and may the gold of Sheba be given to him. Let him pray for him continually. Let them bless him all day long. May there be abundance of grain in the earth on top of the mountains. Its fruit will wave like the cedars of Lebanon. May those from the city flourish like vegetation of the earth. May his name endure forever. May his name increase as long as the sun shines. Let him bless themselves by him. Let all the nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. The Messianic king is prophesied here. And it says his reign is from sea to sea. And it says, and may his enemies bow before him, and may his enemies, what? Lick the dust. Turn over to Isaiah 49, look at verse 23. This is a promise made to Zion. And Zion is an image in the scripture of the, the faithful people of God. And so here's the promise given to Zion, the people of God. Verse 23. And kings will be your guardians, and their princesses your nurses. They will bow down to you with their faces to the earth, and lick the dust of your feet. And you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. So, the enemies of God lick the dust. And if you were to see that how common this theme is, turn over to the book of Micah. Look at Micah chapter 7, verses 14 through 20. 
Micah 7, verses 14-20 Shepherd thy people with thy scepter, the flock of thy possession, which dwells by itself in the woodland, in the midst of a fruitful field. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead, as in the days of old, as in the days when he came out from the land of Egypt. I will show you miracles. Nations will see and be ashamed. Of all their might, they will put their hand on their mouth. The ears will be deaf. They will lick the dust like a serpent, like reptiles of the earth. They will come trembling out of their fortresses. To the Lord our God, they will come in dread, and they will be afraid before thee. Who is a God like thee, who pardons iniquity, and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession? He does not restrain his anger forever, because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt give truth to Jacob, an unchanging love to Abraham which thou didst swear to our forefathers from the days of old. So, the imagery of licking the dust is that of being conquered. And the Bible portrays being conquered. Now, here's, here's the glorious spiritual truth. Yes, physical conquerors could make their enemy physically lick the dust as a sign that they have been subjugated. Yes, God can do that to his enemies, but you know what? The way the Lord defeats most of his enemies and the way he makes them lick the dust, meaning they have been subdued. Because it says, if you notice what Micah 7.14 says, Shepherd thy people with thy scepter. Now, the scepter is a symbol of authority of a king, right? And when he stretches forth the scepter, then he is giving kingly commands. So it's representative of power and the ability to accomplish what you desire as a king. So, the Bible portrays even here in Micah, how compassionate God is to his enemies. He will make his enemies his friends. He will forgive their iniquities and cast them into the sea. That's what he does. So, with all this in mind, turn to Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is, is, is really the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. That's how important theologically it is. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. The Lord will stretch forth thy strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, 
thy youth are to thee as the good. We know from Scripture, we know from the testimony of the apostles in the New Testament, even from the words of Jesus himself, he is David's son and Lord at the same time. He is the God-man. He is David's Lord, but he also descended from David. See, the Pharisees, scribes, they couldn't understand that. Jesus posed that question to them. He says, tell me how David uh, can be the Lord of the Messiah, and yet be <clears throat> under his authority. And they couldn't answer the question. That's when Jesus says, if you can't answer that, I'm not going to answer your question. But, of course, if they'd understood Scripture, they, could have, they, they knew this. Others knew that. who were given the ability by the Holy Spirit to know it. So this stretching of the scepter of the Messiah, it says, it's ruling in the midst of his enemies. But what does it say here? Thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power. That means all those who are his people, who are his people. Now, what did Jesus say in John 6? My Father has given me a people, a sheep, and my sheep hear my voice, and they what? They follow me. That's why the scripture says, he, Jesus says, you have ears to hear, hear. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. They believe in me. And so what we see here, this idea of the Messiah stretching forth his scepter amongst his enemies, he is subduing his enemies under his feet. That's just another way of saying possessing the gates of your enemies, right? But to show you how this imagery, of how, how does the Messiah do this? How is his scepter causing people to volunteer freely in the day of his power? Well, let's take a look at two texts. Turn to Revelation 19. Look at verses 11 through 16. Now, some have erroneously thought that this has a reference to the second coming. It has not a reference to the second coming. It has a reference to the first coming of Christ. Because nowhere does it say in the, in the New Testament with reference to the second coming that he is waging war. No. In the second coming, it's coming to receive the kingdom that has already been conquered according to 1 Corinthians 15. Here's what the text says in Revelation 19, 11-16. And I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat upon it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings 
and Lord of Lords. A sharp sword protruding from his mouth by which he smites the nations. Now this is all figurative language, but it, it, it's conveying, what, what, what is this sharp sword? What is its symbol coming out of his mouth? Well, turn over to Isaiah 11, which is a messianic prophecy. And we'll see. Isaiah 11. Let's start at verse 1 to verse 4. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and the branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Now the Messiah does not have bad breath. What it, the imagery is, is what Revelation 19 says. It's just a, whether it's a sharp sword on his mouth or the rod. So what does, and we know from the scripture and from Jesus' own testimony, he is the rod of Jesse. He is that promised rod, that stem. And what does the Messiah do? He strikes the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he slays the wicked. You know how... <clears throat> In the imagery in Ephesians, well, turn to Ephesians 6, and you'll see. Ephesians 6, in all of this imagery, the armor of God, he talks, the only the piece that's not defensive is a sword that the church has. And it says in verse 17, it says of Ephesians 6, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. So what do you think is, is this sharp sword coming out of the mouth of the Messiah? What do you think this rod that comes out of the mouth of the Messiah in Isaiah 11 that slays the wicked? It's the gospel. It is the gospel. It is the word preached. And what do we see in the testimony of the apostles? Wherever they went and preached the gospel, they were using the sword of the Spirit. And remember, who is the king of the church? Who's the head of the church? Jesus. Who is subduing his enemies under his feet? Jesus. And, he, and who... When he stretches forth his scepter, rule in the midst of his enemies, and they volunteer freely in the day of his power. When Paul preached there in Philippi, Lydia was slain by the sword of the Spirit. It says the Lord opened her heart to receive the preaching of Paul. When they pre when Paul and Barnabas they went 
throughout Asia Minor. And all these people were believing in the gospel when the Jews had rejected it. What was happening? The Messiah was stretching forth his scepter, and he was striking his enemies with the rod of his mouth, the preached word of the apostles. And guess what? As Acts 13.48 says, as many as were ordained of God believed. They volunteered freely in the day of thy power is what they did. You see how glorious the scripture is? You see how, you see, as I studied the scriptures, <clears throat> I mean, I don't really like doing puzzles like some, but it's like doing the scriptures like piecing the puzzle together. And I remember doing these studies over the years, and I'd get excited. I said, you know, there's, there's a unity to the Bible. <laughs> there's a great unity. There are themes that run through. It all ties together. Because there's one God, right? And the God of the Bible is the true and the living God. You see, it is the preached word of the Messiah that conquers his enemies. It is the preached word of the, the church that, that the, the gates of hell can't resist. How do you think we bring captive every thought to the obedience of Christ according to St. Corinthians 10? By volunteering freely the day of his power. That's how the fortresses of hell are defeated. By the preached word of God. We're going to end with this text. While we're in Ephesians, look at Ephesians 1, verses 18 to 23. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance of the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, and power, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, that's Jesus, and gave him as head over all things to the church, Jesus had the church, right? Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church of the Lord Jesus is the fullness of Jesus in a way that is hard to understand. As the scripture says, when he dispenses gifts to men, then Jesus is dispensing gifts to his church as the head. And when that church takes those gifts and takes that sword of the Spirit, the gates of hell doesn't have a chance. Now you may say... Well, preacher, it doesn't look like it in many ways. You know, if you take a look at the progress of the gospel since the days of the apostle, when you look at it over the last 2,000 years, there has been great advances. There really has. And what does the scripture tell us? We're to live by faith, not by sight, right? We're not to be like the unfaithful spies 
When they went into the promised land, they didn't believe the promise of God. God says, you'll take it. But they didn't want to believe the promise. See, we've got to believe the promise. Jesus says, upon this confession of who I am, when you know that I'm the Son of God, and the one who reveals that to you is the Spirit, he says, I will empower you to be my fullness in the world. And you will bring all thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. The church will be victorious. There's no doubt about it. Brethren, as my final sermon to you is on this note. We live by faith and not by sight. Jesus is winning today whether we think he is or not. Rejoice to be the seed of Abraham. Rejoice to be see that the enemies of God will lick the dust. Rejoice that the gates of hell will crumble before the advancing church. That is the promise. That is what you live by. Hallelujah. Let's pray.